Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion and politics. In our first episode of Season 4, Yale Divinity School student Mecca Griffith interviews YDS Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Jennifer Hurt. Dean Hurt discusses how humans are programmed for unity, but also division. I mean, on the one hand, to be human is to have an incredible capacity for empathy, that we can respond to one another, even those who are very different from us. But on the other hand, just as human is the tendency to pay attention only to those who are in your in-groups. She also weighs in on how societies can create real change in the face of injustice. Certainly, societies have changed in the past when people become mobilized and people become organized. Mobilization is is the first step. Organization is another step. And Dean Hurt shares insight on why Christians holding services online is a valid form of worship. Virtual worship is still real worship. And the the body of Christ is never physically assembled all together in one place. I would like to welcome Dean Hurt to the Quadcast. I believe this is your first time as a guest on the Quadcast, as well as my first time hosting. So I am super excited. How are you today? I am great, Mecca. It's wonderful to see you, even if we can't be together in person. And it's a treat to be on the Quadcast. I really want to get into this interview because I think at a time like this, When we think about a global pandemic, when we think about the devastation that has repositioned everyone, how can we cater to one another, be in community with one another, and come together in a way that's healthy, in a way that promotes our best selves? One of the things that I have said many times is I want things to go back to normal. But the question that comes to my mind is, what is normal? So my question to you is, how are you interrogating normal? You are very wise to be asking, querying your own desire to return to the normal. I mean, in some sense, of course, we all want the normal because it's the familiar and in some sense, it's the reassuring that we always have to be interrogating the normal because there, it's always the case that there are forms of injustice. There are forms of inhumanity that are woven into what's become normal, right? What is the status quo, our relationships, our practices, our institutions. And I think right now we, we're seeing so very clearly what some of those injustices are and what some of us who in one dimension or another are privileged can sometimes fail to see or find easy to ignore. And so it's, it's a, it really is a gift right now to be confronted with this, even if it's a gift that makes us angry and makes us sad and makes us exhausted, because it feels so overwhelming when there's just so much that needs to be fixed. But at least we can see more clearly what some of this is. That we, that we need universal health care, that we need to make sure that everyone lives in, in healthy environments with clean air and water, that we see that we need to invest in our communities, that we um, 
don't need to be arming our police with military weapons, that we need to use those resources to build up our communities. Um, and, you know, we need to be taxing the super rich at higher levels so that we can pay for some of these investments in our communities and in our lives and in our infrastructures. And everyone, everyone will benefit from living in a society that is more equitable. Everyone will benefit from living in a society that has better infrastructure that's less vulnerable to the next pandemic. So what, what tools of the imagination do we need in order to do part of what we need to do, right? I mean, we see, okay, we need policy changes, we need structural changes in our society. But I do think we need tools of the imagination as well to make it possible to make these, these kinds of societal changes. And, and in part, we need tools that enable us to make the attractiveness of this picture of this other kind of society we could be living in, to make, to make it attractive to those who most distrust us, to those who most distrust these changes. I mean, obviously there's always gonna be a lot of self-interest that animates a lot of what human beings do, but human beings also live and sacrifice and fight for their ideals. E even, even the people we oppose for their policies are, are usually animated by some kind of an ideal, a picture of what they think really, really matters beyond their self-interest. So if we propose policies in ways that seem to attack or belittle their ideals, we're probably not going to get anywhere. So we need the imagination to move beyond the kind of signaling that just makes the people who already trust us like us, but that further alienates the people who don't trust us. Now that's, that's a major work of, of the imagination. The introductory line of your forming humanity says, once upon a time, we woke to discover humanity as task. You state that the pursuit of this good was at once personal and communal. So in 2020, is there a need to discover or rediscover humanity? Is this an ongoing task requiring constant shaping and reshaping our ethical formation? You know, I do, I do really think that it's helpful to conceive of humanity as a task that we're never done with. Um, and one reason, is it just lies very deep in what it is to be human. I mean, on the one hand, to be human is to have an incredible capacity for empathy, that we can respond to one another, even those who are very different for, from us. Um, and, and it's remarkable what some people do when they're moved by empathy. But on the other hand, just as human is the tendency to pay attention only to the, those who are in your in-groups, right? Those, those, as I was saying a moment earlier, those you already trust, right? Those you already think of as yours. And to, to basically ignore or even to demonize people in one's out-groups or the deviants within your own social groups, the people who don't play by the rules, who don't do it the way you're supposed to do it. And I think we, we really are seeing this with COVID-19. You know, on the one hand, we're seeing this great outpouring of concern and support for healthcare workers, for other frontline workers, that pe people 
are so moved by these stories and want to help. But at the same time, we're, we're seeing this very quick falling back on familiar political tropes that divide us. So that shutting down the economy or wearing masks is framed as an invasion of liberty. And then if you're, then you're back to, oh, those bad people want to take something away from us. They're our enemies. Um, just at the moment when you would think that we would be saying, well, we really are all together against this pandemic. But no, we splinter and we, and that's a very human thing to do. I mean, think also just an incredibly salient part of this moment is the murder of George Floyd and what has happened in the wake of that murder and the killing of Breonna Taylor and Maude Aubrey and others even since then. I mean, why did this ignite global protests on such a large scale? Why did it become a moment that, I mean, certainly it builds on the slow patient work of Black Lives Matter, you know, the movement. There, there was groundwork that was being prepared, but it, we really saw this explode and just, just take over in new ways. So it's partly because of this, this careful work by Black Lives Matter activists. It's partly because of the horrible video itself, right? You know, getting that empathy, um, eliciting um, that empathy in us. But the COVID crisis was part of this, right? That this vast sense of collective vulnerability that we're all feeling vulnerable. And then we see this one human being whose neck is being kneeled on and who can't breathe. And in some sense, that just intensifies the sense of identification that his vulnerability is in some sense our vulnerability, but it reminds us of certain people's extra vulnerability. And then that intensifies our sense of outrage that our society is structured in this way. So empathy is very powerful, but it's also mostly fleeting right? It, it goes after whatever period of time. So it can be transformative, but it can only be transformative finally if it feeds into the transformation of institutions, right? So the, the overwhelming empathy has to become, has to be channeled into patient organized work, and that patient-organized work might be movements and demonstrations, but it has to lead to the transformation of institutions. What does that, this have to do with humanity as a task? Well, it's, it's about recognizing these dynamics of in-group identification and out-group demonization, of the ways in which empathy is intense and transformative, but it's also fleeting and mercurial. It's about understanding all those dynamics so that we can make them work for a better humanity and make them work for a better world. How do we do that? I mean, I'm a student at Yale Divinity School, right? I, I don't have a lot of power or I don't feel powerful um, in a way that I can impact the system or the infrastructure in which I live. Um, for the everyday person who's thinking about their own humanity, what should we do in the midst of being a witness, right? Witnessing 
these types of injustice, uh, witnessing the extra vulnerability, I love that you said that, of other individuals. It's certainly a challenge not to become overwhelmed. And especially when we think, wow, it's, it's, it's me up against a system, right? And how can I change the system? But I think there are many things that each of us can do where we sit. Certainly, societies have changed in the past when people become mobilized and people become organized. Mobilization is is the first step. Organization is another step. So it's not an insignificant thing to become involved in, in protests, say, for example, against police brutality. That's not an insignificant thing. Um, and in even in the COVID era, there are all sorts of ways of, by means of social media to do that without necessarily being out and putting, putting yourself physically at risk. But there are many different dimensions to this as well. There's also the dimension of what are our personal relationships like? How are we living in our communities? How are we activating our imaginations as we, we relate to others? Where is it that we find we are falling into this kind of in-group, out-group thinking? How can we be more imaginative so that we grasp why someone else might respond with fear or resistance to an idea that we think is a good one? People are not transformed by fear. Fear <laughs> makes people build walls and protect what they see as, as, as um, near and dear. So we have to be very imaginative to find ways to talk about change that don't feel threatening to people, but that feel inviting to them, to help them to see this is a world that, that you want to enter, that you want to live in, that you want your children to live in. That's, that kind of imaginative work can be the work of pastors. It can be the work of people in nonprofit organizations. You don't have to change the whole system to be involved in that kind of work. And it does involve you as an individual, your life, the way in which you're living as a witness, just as much as it involves the ways in which you're transforming your relationships. So I want to talk to you about places of worship that have been impacted by this present moment, uh, specifically Christian places of worship, just because it's what I'm familiar with and it's where my experiences are. Um, and I have been on a few Zoom calls and, and prayer calls and listened to sermons via Facebook Live and Instagram. Um, some are referring to virtual spaces as the new frontier. What might this virtual space mean for the faithful individuals whose identities have been anchored by their physical place of worship? Confirmation, baptism, even anointing your head with oil. How can one be communal in a world which forbids us to encounter our neighbors? Well, so let me just start on a very personal level. I'm, my own church community has continued to worship online over Zoom, um, but without communion during this, during this time. And, and I have, like many others, I have found this to be a real lifeline 
during this crisis that it's been for me a a great comfort to gather together and to pray and to reflect on this, you know, on this unprecedented time, these enormous challenges to in light of God's love and in light of God's purposes for us and for the world. And I found this, I mean, in some respects to be a more powerful experience of the gathered body of Christ, because we found this, just this new way of, of worship, so I would want to start just by saying virtual worship is still real worship. And the, the body of Christ is never physically assembled all together in one place, right? That's part of what it is to be the body of Christ. And I, I don't want to deny, though, that there's something also deeply dissatisfying about all this, that to be robbed of sharing the bread and the cup, to be robbed of passing the peace, of, of just bodies, you know, sharing space, breathing the same air. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great loss. And I think for most of us, in, in terms of worship, this will be a, a long time of drought, um, but that we'll get through it. And, and the time will come again when we, should, we can worship together physically and we will we will be so full of joy, right, when that time comes. I wanted to ask you about moving forward into the school year. What types of changes can we expect outside of the virtual classes? Well, I think we've all been learning massive lessons in flexibility and resilience right now. So if you ask what's going to change, it's like, well, what's not going to change? It feels as though it's, it's all change right now. And that, com- you know, coming along with that is, is also just the sense that one can't plan very far in advance. So we, we have done our utmost to, um, to plan and to make the quad safe for the kinds of use that we will be um, devoting it to. So we have many rooms that will be locked. Why? So that the staff can clean the other areas more often. We, we have very small number of classes meeting in person. Why? So that we actually only have one, one class meeting per day so that everything can be very clean when that class meets. Um, so I think we have done our very best job in, in, in terms of trying to think it all through. Really uppermost in our mind is how can we make this uh, a semester in which everyone can thrive and feel connected feel energized by learning in the ways that we're used to, given all of this change, given that the vast majority of what we do is going to be online. You know, we had the latter part of the spring semester, those of us who were here, to experience what it felt like to do that without any preparation. Even with massive amounts of preparation, we know that we will be Zoom fatigued, right? We know, we know some of the challenges because we've gone through it. But I do think that, um, you know, our community, our faculty have been thinking hard about, well, well how can I foster a sense of, of connection and, and, and energy in my classroom if we haven't spent eight weeks together in the same room? How can I maybe hang out after class on my Zoom so that students can stay and, 
And maybe some go into the waiting room or into a breakout session and I can talk to one and then I can talk to another and they can maybe t- talk amongst themselves while they're in the, in the chat. And how can we recreate some of that informal con- contact? I, I think we're, we're, we sort of know how to do the classroom. I think the bigger challenge is how do we create the informal kind of community? Our um, first-year experience team has been doing a wonderful, wonderful job working with our incoming students, creating that in small groups and, and doing this kind of what creative informal time along with all the very formal programming and information sharing and, and so on. So, I, you know, I'm hopeful. I think some things will work and some things won't work, and we're going to learn a lot and and about what works and, and make it even better. We'll just keep reiterating, right? Keep, keep the feedback loop going. Thank you so much for being our guests today. I think this was a rich conversation and much needed. Well, Mecca, thank you so much for the invitation to be on the podcast and for your really thoughtful questions. It's been just a pleasure talking with you.